following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, so uh, over January, uh, we've got a few different people preaching, actually, but um, this morning you're stuck with me. Sorry about that. That's just the way it is. Uh, if anyone wants to make a run for the door, you can do that now. But uh, otherwise, the rest of us are going to get stuck into the Bible. And it might have been a while since you cracked the Bible open. So um, now's the time. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, it's not part of any particular series, but just a passage that I want to share this morning. Uh, so Hebrews is a book right towards the end of the Bible. It's one of the last books. One of the last big, long books in the Bible. Use the contents page if you have to. That's fine. Or get the Bible out on your device. And we're just going to look this morning at four verses right at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, the first four verses, which is really the introduction to the book. We're not going to go through the whole book, obviously, but just this introductory passage. Um, let me read it to you. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. <clears throat> I don't know whether the name Joshua Bell means anything to anybody here. If you are a classical musician, maybe it might. Joshua Bell is one of the greatest living musicians. He is a violinist, virtuoso violin player, one of the best violin players in the world. He has played with almost every major orchestra on every continent, uh, and he's had a glittering career in classical music spanning almost four decades. So he's a stunning player. Uh, back in 2007, Joshua Bell did this interesting social experiment uh, in Washington, D.C. One morning, just ordinary weekday morning, he went down to the Washington, D.C. subway station. And he set himself up against a wall just in the subway area there as a whole lot of commuters were coming through on their way to work and he started busking and so he got out his violin case and opened it up and got out his Stradivarius violin valued at 3.5 million dollars <throat> 300 year old instrument and he proceeded to play for 45 minutes right there in the subway just some of the most exquisite classical music you would ever hear in your life and you can imagine the response. People almost ignored him. And, and, and there's, some, there's some CCTV footage you can see. People just walk straight past. Hardly anybody stops. Hardly anybody gives him a second thought, a second look, second glance. One woman does. She kind of comes up and listens and then talks to him afterwards. I think that's because she knew who he was and recognized him. But most people maybe glance in his direction and then just carry on with their commute. They just focused on where they're going and they're distracted or they've got their earbuds in or whatever it is and they're just on their way to work. And at the end of that 45 minutes, Joshua Bell had the grand total of 
Even though a couple of nights earlier, he'd played at a sold-out concert where tickets were $200 a seat. $32 is what he came away with. And it was this interesting social experiment uh, around how people often miss what's right in front of them and often miss the beauty there or what is profound is staring us in the face, but we so quickly walk past it. But I thought as I was preparing this message that there's maybe another analogy there in, in thinking about this passage, that maybe in some ways this passage in Hebrews is a little bit like that. That this, this short little passage here at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, it is like a symphony. It is like this exquisite symphony about Jesus. I mean, you have here some of the most stunning theology in the whole Bible. You have some of the highest notes of Christology that you will find anywhere in the Scripture. You have these beautiful melodies about Jesus, these soaring harmonies about the person and the work and the nature of Christ. And yet, we can be just like those commuters, can't we? And we can sort of glance and move on and not give it much of a second look or a second thought. And we can feel like, oh, that's just another passage in the Bible. It's just another church service, and we're on to what we want to do next, and our minds are full of what's coming up and what we're doing today. And I just want to encourage you just for a few minutes this morning, maybe slightly more than a few, to just not be like those commuters, not be like those DC commuters, but just stop and take a breath, and and let's just collectively listen for a few minutes. That's all I want us to do this morning. Just think of this passage like a symphony. Think of yourself as one of those hurried, busied, frenzied commuters, but just discipline your mind and your heart just to stop for a while and just take this in. Because if you will, if you will take this in, if you will sit with this and really breathe it in and drink it in, it will do something for you. It will do something in you. And it will lead you not just to a better understanding of what the words on the page mean, but it will lead you closer to the person of Jesus, who is the one who stands behind this passage, the one whom this is all about. So that's what we're going to do this morning, all right? Just stop and listen and take in the symphony of Jesus. So as you look at this passage, you could think of this as having three movements to it, right? Just to stick with the musical metaphor here. Three kind of movements, maybe not easy to discern at the beginning, but there are three themes here. There are three main things being said about Jesus or three identities of Jesus that are being unfolded through the passage. I want to walk with you through each of these three. And the first is described in verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So in the past, what's that a reference to? That's the Old Testament. Okay, when the author says in the past, he's talking about the Old Testament times, our Old Testament. And in those times, how did God primarily speak to his people? Through the prophets, right? That's what the text says. And these are the prophets, like you've got these books in your Bible, right? This takes up a big chunk of your Old Testament. All those names, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Nahum and Habakkuk, all the really hard ones to pronounce. Those are the prophets. That's the prophetic literature. And these were the ways, these were the people through whom God spoke in the Old Testament. And the author says God spoke through the prophets in various times, various ways. So each of the prophets had a little piece of the picture. They saw part of the story. Each of the prophets, as you read them, they, they show us something about the nature of God and his salvation or his judgment or his mercy or his compassion or what he's planning for Israel or what he's planning for the nations or his purposes on earth, his plans for humanity. All of the prophets describe something different. They've all got a different vantage point on the purposes of God. But 
when you get to the end of the Old Testament, and the last prophet in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, and after that, there was 400 years where God was silent. Now, you don't, you don't quite pick that up from reading the Bible because all you've got after Malachi is just one blank page. You've just got that white page in between the Old and the New Testament, right? But just think, that on that page, if you want to, just write 400 years because that's what it represents. We lose the history in the way we read that, but that represents a gap of 400 years. Now, obviously, a lot happened in that 400 years. There was a lot of history, but there was not a revelatory word of God in the same way that there had been in the Old Testament. There was not a prophet in Israel in the same way. God didn't speak in the same way. And so there was this silence. There was this gap. And then you get that next stunning verse in verse 2, Hebrews chapter 1. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, there was this gap There was the silence, but then after that, God has finally spoken and he's spoken in the fullest way and he's spoken in the truest way and he's spoken in the most profound way and the way in which he has now spoken is through his son, Jesus. So the first thing this passage is telling us about Jesus is that Jesus was a prophet, the greatest of the prophets. Now, I don't know how comfortable or natural it is for you to think about Jesus as a prophet. It's not one of the normal titles we give him. We're used to thinking about him as the Son of God, as Lord, as Savior, as King, as these things. But we don't often think of Jesus as a prophet. But this is a good way to start in your mind understanding who Jesus is and what he has done. In fact, you could think, as you think about the Old Testament prophets, think about Jesus standing in that line of prophets. So you could go Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Jesus. Right? We don't think that way, do we? Because, again, of the white page. The white page is like a psychological barrier in our mind. But there is much more continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament than that. Jesus comes at the end of the great long line of prophets, and he is the one who brings God's ultimate word to us. Now, <clears throat> Jesus is not just like any other prophet, though. And this is what we've got to wrap our heads around. That gap of 400 years is pretty significant. In some ways, the way, one way to think about this is um, think about a wedding. So at a, I've taken a few, few weddings, and the way it often goes is about half an hour or so before the wedding, you've got all the background music. Okay, so maybe, it, maybe, there's, maybe there's live music, maybe it's just coming through the PA system. There's music playing, the guests are arriving, everyone's getting seated, the wedding's going to start soon. And then, often what happens is the background music will stop, and there is this pause. You know the pause? The great wedding pause? And sometimes it's an awkward pause, isn't it? Sometimes it goes on a long time. And then, finally, at last... The wedding march or whatever music the bride's going to walk into starts. And you have the flower girl comes in and the bridesmaids come in and then the bride arrives. And this is the great climax. Now, in in some ways, maybe it's a stretch, but think about Jesus a little bit like that. All these prophets of the Old Testament, they were kind of like the background before the main event. And then you have the pause. It was a 400-year pause. It was still a pause. And then now Jesus comes, the great wedding march, the main event, the one who exceeds all of the prophets who have gone before him. 
and brings the fullest revelation of what God has to say to us. The way in which the author describes this, there's a, there's a little phrase you need to catch in here. He says in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, it's, it's a, an awkward sounding phrase. Literally, what he says is, he has spoken to us in son. That would be the most literal translation from the Greek. He has spoken to us in son. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like as if he had said, he has spoken to us in French, or he has spoken to us in Japanese, or he has spoken to us in Korean. It's like Jesus is the language of God. So the idea is not just that Jesus comes and speaks the words of God. That's true. But it's that Jesus himself is the word of God. Do you catch that? So at a much deeper level than just speaking God's words, Jesus is the very embodiment of the word of God. He is the living word. That's why we have the written word here. We have the spoken word that I'm saying to you now. But above all of that, there is the living word who is Jesus Christ. In his very being, he is showing us what God is like. In his very life, as he lives and he teaches and he heals and he dies and he is raised again, in all of that, he is communicating and revealing and showing us the nature of God. He's showing us the love of God, the compassion, the salvation of God, the plans and purposes of God. So don't just think words of Jesus, but Jesus himself, the entirety of the incarnation is a word. It is a revelation. And that is why we call Jesus the word, because he shows us, speaks to us of who the father is. <clears throat> now, for each of these uh, characteristics of Jesus, there's a response that is called for from us. And when you think about Jesus as a prophet, what's our role in response to that? Well, if Jesus is the Word of God, our response is to listen, right? This is where it becomes real to us. It's not enough just to say, Jesus, yeah, you're the Word. This, this demands a response, and our response is to listen. If He is the fullest revelation of who God is, then we'd better be listening. And we can listen. Because we have the written word here that testifies and witnesses to the living word. And so this year, one of the things we're going to do, the major series that we're going to do uh, as we work through Scripture, is we're going to work through the Sermon on the Mount um, in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. And these are the words of Jesus. And this is the best sermon that was ever preached. And these are words that show us what it is to live in the kingdom of God and what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. And that's what's been on my heart to, to share and to kind of lead us into this morning. And this is one of the ways in which you can start listening to who Jesus is and what Jesus has said is by immersing yourself in these incredible words that have come from the mouth of Jesus. So we're going to take our time with that. We're going to just take piece by piece, sometimes just verse by verse, and just over several months, just walk through this description of life in the kingdom of God. And what I would say to you now is that you can already be preparing yourself for that by starting to read it. Have a read. Start this week, Matthew 5, maybe the week after, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. I've said before, the more that you uh, read these passages at home and the more that you prepare yourself, the more you'll get out of these times. 
That way you're not just showing up here and being a spoon feeder, but you are being a self feeder on the word of God. And that's our, that's our goal. That's my desire and my heart for you is that you would become a self feeder on God's word. And so if you're not sure where to start in the scriptures, and maybe you haven't even got a daily practice of being in the word of God, then that's a great place to start. Just start at Matthew 5. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Just take a little bit each day. Just begin to read that. And then as we talk about it here, and maybe you share about it in life groups, it'll make more sense. And if nothing else, you'll have a few more questions to bring that maybe can be answered in the course of the series. So think about that in your own life. If Jesus is a prophet, what does it mean for you to listen? And how can you listen well to him this year as he speaks to you through his word? All right. So this is the first theme in the movement, the symphony of Jesus. Jesus is a prophet. So here's the second theme now, the second movement. Uh, In verse 3, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Uh, That phrase, exact representation there, that's one word in Greek. It's the word character, which, yes, is where we get the English word, character. And originally, that was a word that was used for engraving a coin, So you had these old coins. I think we've got a picture of one uh, on the screen soon. Uh, And much like today, these coins would be engraved, metal coins engraved with a stamp. And whatever was on the stamp, you'd then heat the coin up to a point where it's malleable and press that stamp into it. And the image on the stamp would be engraven into the coin. And that image that was then pressed onto the coin, that was the character. It was called the character. And the idea is it would be an exact representation on the coin of what was on the stamp. Now, think about what it means for Jesus to be the character, to be this engraving on the coin. I think at one level, it's just telling us that Jesus is the perfect image of who God is. That like Jesus himself said, to see me is to see the Father, to see the coin is to see the stamp. But I think there's something deeper going on here. Because if you look at that coin, this is a coin from the first century, from the time of the Roman Empire. Whose image is on the coin? Anybody know? Caesar, Caesar, yeah. Caesar Augustus in particular, the Caesar who was around at the beginning of Jesus' life or in his early years. And, you know, Jesus himself at one point in his ministry, he said to his disciples, didn't he? Show me a coin. And they produced a coin. He said, whose image is on the coin? And they replied, Caesar. It was incredibly significant that Caesar's head is on that coin because it reinforced the idea that Caesar is the one in control. Caesar is the one who has the power. Caesar is the one who is the king of what was really the whole known world at the time. And Caesar even claimed more than that. If you look at the words on that coin, Divus Augustus. So divine Augustus was the idea. Uh, Other coins have divus philus, divine son. So Caesar was not just claiming to be a king. He wasn't just claiming to be an emperor. He was claiming, and others claimed for him, that he was the divine son of God, that he was equivalent to a deity, that he was Lord. He was the son of God. He was the one who believed to bring peace on earth. All these titles that we think are titles of Jesus, they were first titles taken by Caesar. 
And so you can start to see what these New Testament authors are doing in borrowing some of this language and applying it to Jesus. If you were in the first century, the, 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 the representation on the coin told you everything you needed to know about who's in charge. And yet here comes the author of Hebrews, and he says, now there is another character. Now it is not Caesar who is the true king, who is the true Lord. Now it is Jesus. And what he's saying to us, here's the second theme of who Jesus is in this passage. Jesus is the one true king. The author is saying, it's not that king who's sitting in his palace in Rome, who has all authority over heaven and earth. It's this guy here. It's Jesus who's sitting in his little fishing boat with his friends out on the lake. But he is, surprising though it may seem, the one true and rightful king who has far greater authority than this guy over here in Rome. And as Christians, we continue to make that claim today, don't we? That Jesus is the one true king of all creation. Not just my king, not just your king, but the king over the entire world. The king of those who worship him, but also the king of those who don't. Every single square inch of creation is under his sovereignty. And his authority eclipses the authority and control of any other person or group or nation on earth. There's plenty of people today that have immense political power, but Jesus is just so far above all of that. He just exceeds any amount of political national power you can imagine. There are plenty of people today who have vast financial and economic power, and yet Jesus eclipses all of that. He has the, the riches of heaven in his hands and at his disposal. There are people today that have incredible military power and command armies, but Jesus commands the armies of heaven who do his bidding. Plenty of people today have a lot of celebrity power, plenty of followers on Instagram, but Jesus is so far above all of that. His renown, his fame stretches throughout the cosmos. Jesus is above every power, Every authority, every institution, every rule, and every human might, his name is greater and his power is greater. Now, if Jesus is that kind of king, then what is our response? What's our response to this attribute of Jesus? And it's simply this, to submit, to submit our lives. I know that's an old-fashioned word. I know that might be awkward, but that's our role is to, to bring our lives under his rule, to bring our lives under the lordship of Jesus. And I just want to speak to you for a second at a really personal level about this and just say to you, when you bring all this down, I know it's one thing to say, I believe Jesus is the king of all things, but I want to ask you to think about your life for a minute and ask yourself as you start this new year, is there an area of your life that is not under the rule of Jesus as king? Is there a part of your life right now. And maybe it's just lurking there in your heart. You're not even that sure about it, but is there something there that is not fully surrendered to God? Is there an area there where, you know, we were talking before, maybe, maybe God's nudging you to say yes to something this year and everything in you is wanting to say no. Is there something? And you're like, I, I'm, I just don't want to go there. I'm not going to, you're resisting and you're resisting and you are basically being like the prophet Jonah and God is pushing you and pushing you and pushing you. And what does it mean for you to bring yourself under the rule of King Jesus? It means to say yes to that. Hard as that is, uncomfortable though that might be. Some of you, it is, saying, it is stepping into something that God's calling you to do. Others of you, it might be saying no to something. 
And there may be some area of your life where you've just gotten into a bad habit. And there's just something, maybe some secret you're carrying, maybe some hidden addiction that's going on in your life, and you know what it is, and you know the damage that it's doing. Maybe no one else sees it. Maybe no one else knows about it, but God's just putting his finger on it this morning, and he's saying, I want you to say no to that. This is what it means for you. Bring yourself under the rule of King Jesus. That is to say, Jesus, I want to be done with that. Would you help me to take a step away from that? It might be really hard, and you might feel despair at being able to even take that step, but there are others around you in this church community that can help you in that. They're going to help you by the grace of God to take a step. And if God's just putting his finger on something in your life and saying, I want you to submit that to me, bring it to him this morning, lay it down, confess it, bring it out into the open and ask him for his strength and the strength of another brother or sister around you to move forward in that. What is God putting his finger on in your life? Maybe some area where you're just still living apart from him and there's something that you haven't really laid down and brought to him. Something in your life that's maybe more important than it should be. And God is saying to you this morning, I want you to bring that under the rule of my kingship, of my authority. Only you know the answer to that question. I don't see every heart, but the Holy Spirit does. He knows and he's nudging even as I'm talking. And I want to ask you to open your heart to that, not to push it aside. Open your heart to that. And respond. And whatever needs to be submitted, whatever needs to be surrendered, lay it down this morning. Give it over to God and release it to Him. All right, so Jesus is the prophet, and Jesus is the king. And then there's one more, one more attribute that we have here in Hebrews chapter 1. We get it in verse, at the end of verse 3, the last sentence in verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, this language of providing purification for sins, that's the language of a priest. And this is the final identity of Jesus that we meet in this passage. So Jesus is the priest, and he's a king, and he's a prophet. You see these three things coming together? Jesus is the priest. Now, a lot of the book of Hebrews is taken up with the work of the priest, In the Old Testament, these were the people that mediated the relationship between Israel and God. They represented Israel to God, and they mediated the relationship between God and Israel. They represented God back to his people. And so the author is saying now, Jesus has come as the great high priest who has made purification for sins. But here is something I want you to know, and this is just so interesting, I think, in the context of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews talks a lot about priests. And here is one interesting little point about priests in the Old Testament that we read in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Did you catch that? So what does the priest in the Old Testament do? As he's offering these animal sacrifices, he stands, right? It's not inconsequential. The priest is always standing, just partly practical, I guess, partly because there's always another sacrifice to be made. There's always another bull, always another goat, always another lamb to be sacrificed day after day. He's standing and he's performing his duties because there's always more to do. And yet, here's the way that Hebrews describes Jesus, that when he had provided purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down. Come on. That's amazing. You're going to have to get more excited than that. This is fantastic. So you've got the Old Testament priests 
standing, 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 slaughtering animals all day. And here's Jesus comes along as the great high priest. And what is the sacrifice that this priest makes? His own body, his own blood poured out upon the cross. And then he comes before his father in heaven, his heavenly father, and he offers that sacrifice. His sacrifice, his body and his blood, he presents it before the Father. And the Father accepts that sacrifice as full atonement and cleansing for all sin, past, present, future. And then Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. And that act of sitting down is so symbolic. It says, it is finished. It is done. It is completed. Jesus never has to stand up again. Now, we're being a little bit figurative here, but you understand He never has to stand again because the work is complete. That, my friends, is such a freeing thing if you can live in that space, if you can live out of that. And that is our response to Jesus as our priest. On this one, it really is just to receive it because that's all we can do is to receive that incredible grace that's come to us And know that there is nothing more that we can add to that. Because you know how it is, right? You get yourself into these situations where we feel like, man, God, there's no way God can forgive me for that. You know, we do things in our lives. Or often, if in my case, it's more like God cannot forgive me for the five billionth time I've done the same thing. You know, that same dumb thing or that same habit of whatever it is. You know, it's that repetitive stuff that we just go back to by default. And we feel like, oh, I don't think God is interested in taking me back, forgiving me again. Hearing the same prayer of sorry one more time. Those are the moments when you've got to remember Jesus is still sitting down. He is still sitting down. And as long as he is seated, it is finished. Because that sacrifice he made on the cross was not one of many. It was not the ongoing ritual of the Old Testament. That was a once for all sacrifice. That was an all sufficient sacrifice. And here's the beauty of it. It not only covered all the dumb stuff that you've done up to this point, it will also cover the dumb stuff you're going to do tomorrow. Because let's, be fa- let's face it, we're all going to do dumb stuff. And it will cover the dumb stuff that you're going to do on Tuesday and Wednesday. On and on and on it goes. You have been forgiven past, present, and future. So if you ever get to that point of feeling like, man, I've just exceeded the limits of God's grace, that is so impossible that it would require Jesus being sucked back out of heaven and put on the cross again, which is never going to happen because it is done. It is finished. The very fact that Jesus went to the cross meant that he was willing to take all of it. He saw it all. The Father knew it all. And when he put it on his son, he was saying, I will pay for it all. There is nothing you can do to ever out sin and go beyond the grace of God. This is what Paul says, right? The the, the more our sin increases, God's grace increases all the more. Or another way of putting it, as a friend of mine puts it, there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. Can you hear that? There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in us. Or as I think Tim Keller puts it, you are far worse than you can ever imagine, but Jesus is a greater Savior than you can ever believe. That's good. Think about that. The the bad news is actually worse than you think it is. 
You only actually have a fraction of a grasp on just how bad you really are. But it's okay because Jesus is a savior you could never believe possible. And he will take all of your sin and even the stuff you are yet to do. All of it. And he has. And he's paid for it. And it is done. So I want to just encourage you this year. Live out of that place. Live out of that freedom. And on those days where you're just so down on yourself and down on life and feeling like God's a billion miles away and you're just weighed down by your own sinfulness in those moments, please, please, please remember this verse and remember and picture in your mind, Jesus is still sitting down. And as long as he's seated there, it is finished. And that's good news. So, who is Jesus? He's a prophet, and he's a king, and he's a priest. He is prophet, priest, and king, all three. And they're all overlapping categories, and they're all beautifully personal categories. He's not just a prophet. He's a prophet that you can hear from every single day as you meet him in the pages of Scripture. He's not just the king. He's the king who invites you to his table and says, come and sit with me. And he's closer than a friend. And he's not just a priest, but he's a priest who has atoned personally for all of your sin and now invites you to live out of the freedom and the forgiveness that he has provided. That is your savior. He is your prophet. He is your priest. And he is your king. And I pray that this year you might come to know him personally in those ways as prophet, priest, and king and be drawn a little closer to him and follow him a little more closely and receive a little bit more fully the grace and forgiveness that he has. Because ultimately, the most important thing in your life and the most important thing in our faith is not what you think you can do for God. It is what God has already done for you through the person of Jesus Christ. Take that with you into this year. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this beautiful symphony that we've heard from your word this morning. It is like just these these beautiful melodies that just pour into our hearts. And just want to pray now that from all the richness of your word that we've heard this morning, that you would just settle on our hearts, maybe the one phrase, maybe even the one word that you want us to, to really hear, just for each person here in the room this morning, God, Jesus, to the way that you're wanting to speak to them, the, the particular part of who you are, God, those that need to know you this morning as their prophet and hear you speak. And there's some here this morning that really need that word from you. And I pray that they would hear you, Jesus. And I pray for those, God, who are just struggling and wrestling with how to or whether to bring their lives to you and submit them to you and lay them down. And I want to pray, Jesus, that you would draw them close and draw them near and just lovingly show yourself to them as the king. And for those, God, that are just struggling to live out of your grace, and finding it hard to believe that you really do love us that much, and we really are that forgiven, would you show yourself to us as our amazing high priest who just provides, has provided this full banquet of forgiveness for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are all of these things and more, and we pray that as we go into this week, that you just keep reminding us of who you are, and Lord, help us to draw our lives closer to you and receive into our lives, the fullness of all that you are and all that you have done for us. We thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.